0: Our first reading for today is from the Psalms, Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Our pleasures forevermore. Our New Testament reading today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letters of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory We are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But... When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So, Today we're going to look at two passages in detail, and then we're going to end in John 17. So if you have a Bible or you want to follow along, you can. The message, uh, the verses will be on the screen. But today's message to, to me is probably the core value of my life that I have been given by God that I cherish the most. and And that is the ability to commune with the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. And I believe that as I'm going to hope to explain and, and defend, that that was the reason why I was made. That's the reason that I live, is to behold and to commune with God by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. And and it's my opinion that unless we find our purpose for life, we will never be truly satisfied with anything else. Uh, created things cannot, as we will see, cannot fill the void that exists in each of our hearts. It exists in your heart. If you've never seen it, you're not being honest with yourself. I am uh, absolutely a fan of various cuisines. And one of the things that I've discovered is no culinary culture in all of the earth has any sort of food, which after you eat it, you don't want to do it again. Think about it. Have you ever had tiramisu? Tiramisu is a testimony to the fact that you can never be satisfied. Because after you try tiramisu, a, a week later, you will say, boy, that was great. <laughs> and and you'll think to yourself the next time, unless you don't like chocolate, then put in cheesecake. But insert your own favorite dessert or, or food or pleasure. You are a being who has the capacity for pleasure and enjoyment. And that capacity is limitless. And, and we believe as Christians that we were made for God. And so the Christian must be growing in his or her experience of the enjoyment of God, we're going to look at how that is shown in these two passages, and then finally in John 17, uh, which was not in our reading, but I'll, I'll read at the end. Uh, so with that framework of, of where I'm going, I want to look at five points. A good reform sermon always has five points. Um, if you don't get that joke, take the theology class. It's a, it's a good joke. Um, The first thing I want to do is I want to look at the Trinitarian nature of mankind. We, as Christians, we understand that we were made in the image of God. And that image is not just of a monotheistic God. We, as Christians, are monotheists. Um, many, uh, Many religions are not monotheistic. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. That means we believe there is one God. But the scriptures, over and over again, communicate to us, that this one God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They, uh, they are not its, they are beings, they are persons. Uh, so there's one being, G- God, and he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those three persons and the nature of the relationship within the Trinity is uh, the foundational aspect which gives us understanding of ourselves. Humans are made in the image and likeness of a Trinitarian God. And that understanding allows us to see that we were made for community. We were made for relationship. So we're going to look at the beginning of the Bible. You're probably all very familiar with Genesis 1. Even if you haven't spent much time in a a church or or growing up in Sunday school, you you may understand the beginning of the Bible uh, describing that God made the world. How he made human beings distinct in that world is very important to our ability to understand why are we here. Why are you here? So moving from there, we're going to talk about the purpose for your life. And this is asked in many various ways. Perhaps one of the most uh, abstract ways, is what is the meaning of life? And that's a great question. What is the meaning of life? We, As mankind has existed on this earth, Philosophers, theologians of all ages have always attempted to answer the question, what is the meaning of life? What's the purpose for my existence, for your existence? Where is this all going? And I believe that these two passages give us a great uh, starting point in seeing what is the point of, of our lives. Obviously, we have work to do. Obviously, we have to be uh, in community. But the ultimate point of our life transcends those two parts of our lives. And so everything that happens in our life is undergirded or it's given purpose by a greater purpose, which is to know and experience and enjoy God. And so I want to look at how this psalm that we read today, Psalm 16, provides a basis for uh, the experience of longevity. And what longevity means is specifically the ability to live throughout every season of life and not falter. Many of us are young believers, we're young Christians, or, or perhaps you're not a, a believer, but, but you're a young person and you think to yourself, how am I going to make it these next 60 years, next 80 years? I believe David gives us, gives us a vital key to longevity, that is the ability to walk and not stumble. Obviously, there will be times of dark seasons, times of dry seasons, but he shows us something here that gives us confidence in the midst of our walk with Christ. And so after looking at longevity, we're going to look at how we were made to behold Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we do not believe in some abstract spirituality. Much of our culture attempts to divorce the two ideas, saying things, ridiculous things like, uh, you can be re- spiritual, but not religious. And and that sounds really eloquent, right? I mean, that. That has the air of wisdom, but uh, there's nothing between the ears on that statement um, because there is only one true faith, and that one true faith it uh, seeks to demonstrate and to explain to the human being that you were made for a purpose and that purpose is to know God that's why he created you and he wishes to have relationship with you and so religion without spirit or spirituality without religion is is just a meaningless touchstone it's a meaningless uh, phrase. And so we're going to look at the purpose of Christianity is not just to get in connection with some abstract, impersonal God, some life force, some man in the cloud, some person upstairs, if you will, but rather there is a, a person who is communicated to us through the Holy Spirit, and that person is Jesus Christ. And by our fellowship with Jesus Christ, we can know the Father and have life with him. And then at that point, we're going to talk about John 17 and how Jesus Christ's actual mission was to bring this about. When when many of us hear the gospel, we hear that Jesus Christ died for our sins, and that's kind of a cultural knowledge. Many people in our culture have that knowledge. But what we don't understand is that is not the greatest gift in the gospel. The forgiveness of sins, the sparing of judgment, the the pass to heaven instead of the judgment to hell, that is not the greatest gift in the gospel. And heaven would be no good place at all if Christ was not there. Christ himself is the greatest gift in the gospel. And it's my opinion that these two passages, and along with John 17, are actually trying to bring us to that point. For us to understand that we were made to commune and have fellowship with this God. And so... Let's look at the aspects of our existence as understood by our understanding of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. Uh, we've all heard this phrase many times, but essentially when we begin to look at the entire scriptures, we see the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, these three persons who are eternally existing in one God. And what this means is there is not a time that the Father was and the Son was not. That is to say that Jesus Christ although he is the only begotten son that begetting is an eternal begetting. Uh my wife is currently pregnant and I'm very happy about that. But my son or daughter, I hope it's either one. Um <laughs> I, I actually I actually don't care. I think it would be more biblical to have a son first, but whatever. The, I'm I'm totally kidding. The the point is that child was not eternally begotten. Uh, they were begotten in 2015, at some point. Um, Jesus Christ's eternal begetting is a very important concept for you to understand. Uh, we, we've talked about this many times. John 1:1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So not only is the Word, that is the Son of God, not only does He exist, He exists with God, and then He exists as God Himself. And so, about a month ago, we talked about John 1 1, and we saw how, in all of the scriptures, whenever anyone encounters God, they cannot stand to be in God's presence. Moses comes before God and has to hide his face. Various prophets of old, Daniel, for example, was visited by one who was like a son of man, and he falls down as if he's dead. And he cannot stand to behold this one. And then John 1, 1 comes along and says, not only was God, uh, not only was the word existent eternally, but the word was with God. And that with is a, a communing verb. It's a verb that says the word of God eternally beheld the father and the father eternally beholds the son and the spirit is mediating or allowing that to take place. And this really is the holy ground of our, our ability to, by the scriptures, perceive even through a, a, a theological telescope into God himself. And this is glorious and beautiful, but that is not where our understanding of God ends. Our understanding of God, uh, is it starts there, it's, it's clearly revealed in the scripture, but God has invested us with his image such that by our understanding of him, we can know something about ourselves, and we can know it to be true. And so in the Trinity themselves, that is the father, the son, the Holy spirit, we see both a capacity or an ability, if you will, and a desire for interrelationship and dwelling and community. And so community is not some uh, thing that we invented in Christian circles to, to encourage and strengthen one another community for human beings derives from the fact that God himself is a communal being. Uh, now, I'm not talking about communalism. I'm not talking about sharing all of your material stuff with each other if as if that was the ultimate point of life, material things. I'm talking about fellowship and life and beholding and becoming. Although there is no becoming in God, there is a becoming in us, and I think that's what these two passages talk about. So, we know that the eternal God exists, is with God, and is God himself. And when Christ prays to the Father, right before he goes to the crucifixion, he actually petitions the Father that God would open up this divine community to us. And this is probably the most significant aspect of that prayer in John 17, as we're going to see at the end. He declares in this prayer that he himself is in the Father, I want you to think about dwelling places here. Christ is in the Father, and Christ also says in his prayer that the Father is in him. And then he petitions God to allow it to be the case, miraculously by his grace alone, that we would be adopted into this relationship. I don't know about you, if you've ever faced rejection in your life, this is unthinkable. Because what it says is, not only was I made for a purpose— But God himself wants to know me. And Jesus Christ, even though he's about to go die a bloody, terrible death, is more concerned that he would pray to the Father that God would do this. Not spare him from the cross, but by the cross, open up a way for us to dwell with God. That's amazing to me. God reveals himself in the language of the community. And I want you to think about this As you understand, especially if you've been in the church for any length of time, the Father exists as the Father of the Son, not the Father apart from the Son. Likewise, the Son, understanding Jesus Christ as the Son of God, we have to ask the question, the Son of whom? Well, the Son of the Father. And so God, even in his uh, revelation of himself, in the way that he communicates himself, it is a relational definition. For example, uh, many of us in the West we have last names that beget or uh, belie uh, some aspect of our history. Um, many people, even in this church, uh, where's where's Tony? Tony is is Tony here? Tony Johnson. There he is. He's in the back. Tony Johnson, right? Johnson, right? Somewhere along the line, somebody gave his ancestor a name that was a defining name. It was Tony Johnson. At some point, I don't know his ancestral tree. But the point is, at some point, there was a guy named John, and whoever's son was John's son took on that last name. And and so we see in God's revelation of his name to us, he declares his name as a communal name, the Father of the Son, the Son of the Father. And the Spirit himself, in the Word of God, describes himself as the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son. And here we begin to see some of the basis for that creed that we recited earlier. And so this is how God wishes to demonstrate who he is throughout all of the scriptures. Now, it would take us too long to go and hunt down every place in scripture where it backs up these short, concise statements. But the point is that we can understand from the scripture, God is a relational God, and he has taken that relational image and invested it in mankind. And so when God makes Adam, he makes Adam to be a communal being, a being with the ability to have fellowship, to have purpose. God breathes into Adam, literally the, the term is inspiration, that is, inspirating or, or putting his spirit in man, and Adam becomes, as it says, a living soul. He bestows on Adam the gift of life, and Adam then begins to relate to God in a special way. God makes the birds of the air. He makes the fish of the sea. He makes the beasts of the field, but he never speaks to them in Genesis 1 and 2. He does speak to Adam. And so we begin to see that the Adam and the creatures are both made out of the same ground. It says that God formed the beasts of the field out of the ground and Adam himself was also formed. And so God's forming of Adam that is, the man, that Adam is literally the Hebrew word for the man, Uh, God's forming of this man uh, does not confer specialness on the man, but rather the inspiration of his spirit into this man. God breathes into the nostrils of Adam. He does not breathe into the nostrils of the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, or the fish of the sea. He breathes into Adam and not only gives him work to do, but also gives him a calling and then begins to speak to him with promises and grace. God makes a place for every single uh, creature, but then God makes a special place for Adam to live in, that is the garden. Adam has not only a place to live, but he himself is a living soul. And so we see a difference between Adam and the creatures, and that, that echoes to today. No other creature has ever achieved as if they were achieving anything, Uh, some sort of sentience or self-expression or a a discernible language that we can easily replicate and dissect and, and look at, or art or business, finance, transportation. No other creature has these things because no other creature is made in the image of God. And so the uniqueness of mankind derives from having been invested with the image of God and having God breathe in his nostrils. God creates a helper for Adam at this point, saying it's not good for Adam to be alone. So instantly we begin to see in the pattern of God's creation, these signposts along the way that God wishes for this Adam to have a special helper. God made all the birds birds of the air, the beasts of the field, the fish of the sea, but he doesn't specifically make their mates. He just makes them. But with Adam, he specifically makes his wife, uh, who will later be known as Eve. Uh, out of himself. And so God is demonstrating through the created order that Adam has a purpose, Adam has a job to do, and he is a living soul who can hear from God and is responsible to God and can relate to a specific person, this 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 woman that God has made. And so we begin to see traces of community at the very beginning. God comes into the garden after the sin that uh, Eve falls into and Adam joins with, and God comes into the garden during the cool of the day. Literally, the word in the text is the spirit of the day, or the the point in the day at which there is a reflection. Uh, You can think of iced tea on the back porch at seven o'clock in uh, late summer. This is what is happening. This is a time for rest. The work is done, and God is coming to be with Adam. And although it doesn't say that this was God's habit, I believe it's clear from inferences that this was God's pattern, that God would come at the end of every day and evaluate Adam's work. Why do I believe that? Because that's the pattern of Genesis 1 and 2. Every time God does something in Genesis 1 and 2, he makes something, he extends it, he expands it, or he makes a boundary between water, land, etc. Anytime God works, at the end of that day, he comes And And so God comes on this day, at the end of the day, in the spirit or the cool of the day, and he comes to evaluate. He comes to be with Adam. Now, we don't have time to go from here into the judgment of that sin that, that Adam entered into. But the point is that God himself came to be with Adam in the garden. And if we understand truly who God is, as revealed through all of the scripture, that is amazing because God has life in himself. Jesus says in the book of John that the father has life in himself and the father has granted that the son has life in himself. But here we see God coming to at least visit, if not to, as a habit, be with Adam at the end of his day. And this begins to give us an understanding that all of our culture completely misses, that we were made in the image of God and being made in the image of God we have a need for, and a capacity to have a relationship with him. And that really is why we were made. If God did not desire for that to be the point of life, he would not have given us the breath of life. We would have just been like the beasts of the field. And I don't know about you, I have not been living like a beast recently. Uh, I put on clothes. Why? Because nakedness confers upon human beings some sort of shame. And the reason why— is because we have a dignity that is covered. Unlike a dog or a bear or any other animal, they don't get afraid or ashamed of anything. Uh, Unless they've done something wrong and you've come home and seen that the trash is knocked over, then they get ashamed. Um, But normally, animals do not exhibit any of these attributes of human beings. And these attributes speak to some uh, origin other than just simple random evolutionary processes. There is no point in shame, in an evolutionary worldview. So the point being is that we were made for a purpose, and this purpose shows up even at the very first mention of men in the scriptures. So moving from that, we have talked years and years on Moses and his dealings with the people of Israel. Moses wrote a prayer, and that prayer is included in the book of Psalms. Now, most of the Psalms are David, King David's Psalms. Uh, There are some from the other worship leaders in Israel at the time, but essentially the point is that the Psalms contain prayers for the people of Israel, and those prayers are their life. And so Moses, when he is about to leave this earth, when he's about to die, he writes a prayer. It's been compiled in the book of Psalms, and in that prayer, he makes a statement which I think is extremely important, especially to consider as we are young people. Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us. To number our days. Why does he say this? Earlier in the psalm, he says men live to about eighty years, if or sorry, seventy years, if if by reason of strength maybe eighty, and at this point uh, we die. And so, in light of that, Moses is asking for God to open up spiritual wisdom for the people of Israel that they would number their days, not just their years. He says they live maybe seventy, eighty, ninety years, but the, but those are not enough to consider. We must consider how to spend each particular day. Moses is understanding that he will die one day. As he's approaching the end of his life, he understands this and he wishes to give this grace to the rest of the people of Israel, that they would number their days, that they would consider them not to be things to be wasted. Why? Because they have value and they have purpose. Their life has meaning. If you are to get a heart of wisdom, you must consider how fleeting life is. What's interesting to me is that um, these readings are chosen years and years ago. We, we follow a calendar, and, and um, sometimes things happen in my life or in the life of this church that are somewhat coincidental. I don't know if they are, but I think it was kind of interesting as I looked at these readings and my preparation. Uh, my wife and I actually went to, for the first time she had never been, to uh, Woodland Cemetery and we went on a walk in Woodland Cemetery, and it it was an enjoyable experience. And if you've never been to a funeral or never been to a cemetery, perhaps you've at least seen one by the side of the road. But a cemetery has a very important uh, societal function in the life of a city. And the reason why it's good that Woodland Cemetery is where it is, is it's so close to a university. And you cannot escape from the fact, while walking, taking a nice leisurely stroll through a university, especially after eating a wonderful brunch, um, you, you cannot escape from the fact, as you're walking in a cemetery, if you have anything going on between your ears and aren't glued to your phone, um, you can't escape from the fact that one day you will be here. That, that's the point. That's the societal function of a cemetery. It's to remind you, yes, you may think, young person, that you will be forever, but you will not. You will die. And so this is Moses' appeal to the people of Israel. Get a heart of wisdom. Consider your days, not just your years. Think about what you were made for and don't waste them. And so if we're not to waste our life, we have to know what the purpose of our life is. And I think that purpose is clearly shown in Scripture. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is a concise set of questions and answers which are used to help new believers understand the faith. It's usually used for, if you're growing up in church, it would be used for children. Um, but it also is, is perfectly applicable to either a new believer or a strong believer. It's, it's a great set of questions. The way it's structured is a set of questions and answers, and the question and answer are both given to you. This is an open book test. Um, But the point is that the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with the question, what is the chief end of man? And that doesn't mean, what is the thing that most often kills people? It's not the chief ending of man, it's the chief goal or uh, purpose for men, for uh, men and women, mankind. And the answer to that question is given as the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I believe that the Westminster's, uh, the Westminster theologians, would say amen to changing that word "and" to the word "by." That the the point of man's life is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever, and that distinction I think is very helpful. You were created for this purpose, and this is actually the theme that David takes up and. Here's where we're going to get to our reading today in Psalm 16. David says in verse 2, I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, consider the weight of what David's saying. David has literally nothing that is good in his life apart from the Lord. David is at this point the king of Israel. And he not only is the king of Israel, he has gold, he has armies, he has a, a team of of these special people called David's mighty men, who are like his own personal you know, secret service, if you will. Uh, David's saying that apart from the Lord, considering being apart from the Lord, there's nothing in his life that is good at all. And this is amazing. David sees God as his food and his future. We're about to look at some some next verses, but think about what you most often worry about in your life. It's usually your future, And if it's not your future, perhaps you're in a state of financial difficulty. Most often it's food. Um, For most of humanity's existence, that that is the most common thing in the history of men, to be anxious about what is your food and what is your future. And David testifies that God is better than his food and better than his inheritance. Verse 5 and verse 6, the Lord is my chosen portion. Uh, That means part of a meal or piece of meat. Uh, you know, essentially this, God is better than prime rib. uh, And and my cup, you hold my lot. And now a lot is not um, a field. Uh, Although a lot is a field, the way in which this verse is talking about the word lot is it's a, a stick. And through the casting of lots, often a decision, a very important decision would be made if the decision couldn't be made by reason. And so David is saying that the one who's deciding the lots is actually the Lord himself. God is determining his portion and his future. Verse 6, the lines, that is the boundary lines on a piece of property or a piece of land to inherit, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Food is a sustaining element. It's a strengthening element. And what David is saying is that God is not just a sustainer. Not only is he God, uh, David's portion, but he is a choice portion, a choice portion. Um, this is absolutely amazing. When David looks at his future experience of God, that is uh, looking into the future of his life, David says the lines have fallen for me in good places. He's in a good place now, and he has a beautiful inheritance. So not only is, does he know where the boundary lines are today, But where he's going is decided by God. And this is because of what takes place in the last part of the psalm. David's life is completely wrapped up in the joyful experience of God's presence. And this is where we see that in this psalm. This allows David to live in total security, no matter what happens in life. And by security, I do not mean, and I don't think David means, material prosperity or relational prosperity. blessing, that is, he's not going to have any sort of problems. In fact, if you look at the life of David, it's very clear David has a lot of problems. Moral issues, uh, his, his son at one point, one of his sons actually starts a war for the kingship, uh, for the kingdom. Uh, it's it's a, a life filled with shaky things, and yet David has the ability to, by faith, knowing God's promise and God's faithfulness, to say this, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Why? Because God is dwelling in his heart. The The scriptures over and over again say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. His heart instructs him because his heart is meditating on God. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I want you to think of what David is saying. And I want you to kind of imagine It maybe it helps if you do it from a top-down view. But David is saying that the Lord is always at my right hand. Well, what's usually at your right hand? If you're uh, some sort of warrior uh, or a police officer, um, your right hand is going to be that thing which you reach for in a time of weakness or a time of war, that thing which you need for strength. And so David is saying that the Lord himself is at my right hand. It's it's the expression in biblical uh, language to say that thing which I go to reach for. This is why um, you can actually tell whether what a person usually values the most. Normally, in my right pocket, I have my iPhone and my Leatherman uh, Skelly Tool CX because it's an amazing tool. And that's right here. And my keys are on the left because I don't need my car as much as I need my phone or a tool. The, the point being that i always i cannot leave home without patting my right pocket to see if it's there because i don't feel secure i you know i might have to uh tighten a loose screw and if i don't have my uh multi tool can't do that the the point being that david is saying that the lord is at his right hand so i want you to just imagine that the lord is at his right hand david has set the lord before him always but here we're about to see something Amazing. David has set the Lord before him, and it is God's presence which provides the security. Because he is at my right hand, I will never be shaken. Although many things are shaking in David's life, he is not. Throughout absolutely all the storms of life, David is not going to be moved from faithfulness, not because of his own effort. You who are constantly frustrated at your own effort, your own ability to be before the Lord, you're constantly evaluating Uh, your own walk with God, if this is you, take a look at what David says, because the Lord is near, I will not be moved. Not because David will be faithful. And in fact, we see many times David is totally unfaithful. And yet God in his love chastises him and brings him back. But here we're about to see something amazing. And this is where we have to reuse our imagination again. Verse nine, therefore my heart is glad. Now let's just stop there for a second everything in your life is done to the end that your heart would be glad. Whether it's exercise, hard work, investment in the future, uh, pursuing uh, a spouse, uh, pursuing children, everything is done in your life in the end of your heart being glad. There is nothing that you do in this life that isn't invested with hope in some way. And that hope is that you would be able to taste the goodness of that thing that you're working for, or that thing that you're aiming to uh, achieve, whether it's uh, an accomplishment or a good or a service, anything you do is done in hope that your heart would be glad. And David says, because the Lord is near, my heart is glad. And then he goes on further and says, my whole being rejoices. Body, soul, spirit. David is saying that his being is satisfied and it's satisfied in one place, and that we see that in verse 11, my flesh also dwells secure. There is a bodily sense of peace and safety that David has because the Lord is present. And here's where we need to use our imagination. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, are pleasures forevermore. In verse 9, David says, I am fully glad, and my whole being is rejoicing. And then he says in verse 11, at god's right hand are pleasures forevermore so now we need to bring the two images together david says the lord is at his right hand and then david says he's experiencing joy because there's joy at the lord's right hand and so we see this is the image of two people standing face to face this is what david is saying in this psalm is that he is able to dwell securely he's able to have his whole life rejoicing because the Lord is at his right hand, and because he is at the Lord's right hand. And the only geometry that makes that possible is when they are standing face to face. Now, surely David's not talking about being in the bodily presence of Jesus Christ. He is talking about a reality which is communicated to him by the Holy Spirit. David's heart is glad, and he rejoices because there's joy at God's right hand. And you have to ask the question, David, how do you know that's there? Because he is at God's right hand. Moses, in, uh, in the old covenant, went in before God. And he, like David, stood face to face with God. And when Moses would come out of that tabernacle, his face would glow. We're talking about a divine glow in the dark, if you want to imagine it like that. Moses goes in before God. And his face glows. And when he comes out, the people of Israel are really freaked out. (laughs) They say to Moses, Moses, this is totally weird. Put a veil over your face. We don't want to behold this. It's too real for us. And so Moses puts a veil so that they would not be terrified. Um, Up until this point, every time Israel in her sin had approached God, she always faced some sort of judgment or warning not to approach God. And so they were rightly concerned. And this veil is over Moses' face. So uh, maybe if you want to imagine a beekeeper having a shroud or the the little helmet over his face, Moses is not able to communicate that glory to the people of Israel because they are terrified. And the writer of 2 Corinthians, Paul, says that this veil is not just speaking of an outward veil on Moses' face, but it's also an inward veil that lies over the heart of the hearers. So there is a veil over Moses' face, but but Paul says that veil is actually over the heart of the believer or the the person who would be hearing God's promises. This is what we sang about today in the song What Would I Have Done? God's love in the cross takes down the veil that was over our hearts. And so here Paul then describes this in great detail. The veil over the heart is removed in Christ such that we become exactly like David seeing face to face. And this is exactly echoing the exact same idea. Second Corinthians 3 and Psalm 16 are speaking in concert. They're in unison, and they're describing the reality that is open to those who have had the veil removed, and that veil, as Paul says, is taken away when one turns to Christ. So when one, again, that imagery of, of being at the Lord's right hand, when one turns to Christ, that veil is removed from the heart, and there that person beholds the glory of the Lord. Verse 14, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Uh, sorry, that verse 16. Uh, verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Spirit of the Lord is the only person who brings freedom in your life. Uh, Chase does not bring freedom. I, You know, I hate advertisements because... Be- it's kind of like, you know, they say about hot dogs, like once you see how it's made, you never want to eat one again. I don't know if that's true um, because I've seen hot dogs being made and uh, not in person, but then I've eaten one. Uh, I actually, a point of pride in my life was I saw Super Size Me years ago. And that very same day I went out and got some chicken nuggets because because I wanted to see if I could do it as a test of will. But the point is uh, I worked in an ad agency and, and all day long you get to see these people uh some you know i'm not condemning all advertisement but but many of the advertisements which plague you all day long and i use that term very intentionally plague you all day long are constantly appealing to you that there is some other source of fulfillment other than god and uh by no means am i saying that you don't need to actually eat real food but what christ says is that the true food is doing the the will of the father and so when coke comes along and says coke is happiness uh I just say, no. <laughs> chase freedom, no, chase will not get me freedom. Having the ability to buy everything in my life that I could ever want use, using a credit card is not freedom. The Spirit of the Lord brings freedom. And that Spirit is seeking to do one thing, and that is to glorify Jesus Christ. Verse 18, and we all, he's talking about Christians, he's writing a letter to Christians, all of us with an unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is amazing to me. What what Paul is saying, there was, a, there was a veil over Moses's face, such that the Israelites would not be terrified and that he could still speak to them. But here he says that now we who have turned to Christ, Christ has removed the veil from our heart and also over our face, such that we can look upon Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit and that beholding of Christ becomes for us our becoming. That when we behold Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, that Paul says we are becoming, uh, this is where I like the King James a little bit more, it says, we're moving from glory to glory, which is the title of this message. Uh, we're moving from one glory, in the ESV says, one degree of glory to another, The idea is not that you're just, one day it's very glorious, and then the next day it's kind of less glorious. The point is an absolutely ever-increasing passing from glory to greater glory. The idea is the Christian life should be a progressive revelation of Jesus Christ and who he is, such that your life begins to be submitted to that image, and that he, by his grace, not your effort, transforms you to look like Jesus. And by look like Jesus, I'm not talking about long brown hair and a tunic. I'm talking about taking on the attributes of grace and gentleness and mercy and severity and, and uh, love and, and, and joy and the ability to love God with righteousness from the heart, uh, carrying out the commandments as Jesus uh, told us to, to teach in the Great Commission. And so this is the way by which we make progress as Christians. And it is the point of life. Beholding God is not just the way in which we make progress, but it was the reason why we were made. You were made for a purpose, and that purpose is to know and to love God. And nothing in our culture wants you to know that. No matter what issue it is, all of our culture is set against, and by all of our culture, I'm not talking about those parts of culture which are influenced by the church and those parts are very small and few and far between. But the majority of Western civilization is is aiming towards another point. And when you begin to think about this, you have to ask yourself, well, okay, I hear you, John, and you say that the point of life is to know God, but I don't fully agree with that. Well, if you don't agree with that right now, I want you to take some time this week and ask yourself, well, what else am I living for? I can tell you that no matter how large your F, uh, your 401k gets, it won't even matter the next day. You can see your bank account climb for your entire life, and it will never satisfy. I don't have this on good authority, but it's a it's a quote in the culture that Andrew Carnegie, the the guy who was behind Standard Oil, if you you, you may have know of Carnegie Mellon University, he was asked the question, and this is just an anecdote. I'm not I'm not saying he actually said this, but I I have heard that he said this. That at near the end of his life, a lady asked him, uh, Mr. Carnegie, uh, you know, how much money is enough? Because Andrew Carnegie is the wealthiest person in the world at this point. And the, the response, at least in anecdotal form, that Andrew gave that day was a little bit more. The wealthiest person on the earth said, how much money is enough? A little bit more. And that is what I'm trying to get at. You have an insatiable need for experience. And that it can only be satisfied in Christ. Um, it, it can't be satisfied in in sexual experience. It cannot be satisfied in power, political, politically or otherwise. It cannot be satisfied in material goods. Uh, take a look at the trash cans of of junk that I just threw away. Um, the, the the point is, nothing in your life that you can obtain will ever be enough, except for this. And so. We now need to look at this as being a part of the gospel. Many people, they hear about the gospel, they hear Jesus Christ died for their sins, and by faith in Jesus Christ, they can turn from a judgment which is coming on them, which is coming against them in wrath, and they can be spared, and they can go to heaven instead of going to hell. And that is true. If you are worried about your eternal state with God, you can have security today by repenting and turning to faith in Jesus Christ. But that is not the point of the gospel. That is not even the greatest gift in the gospel. That is a major aspect, but it is not the greatest thing. The reason why is because apart from forgiveness with God, we have no access to know God because we're blinded. The goal of Knowing God is directly connected in Jesus Christ's mind and in his prayers, we're about to see, to his sufferings. His sufferings are not something that is like foundational and then growing in grace with God, fellowshipping with him by the Holy Spirit is like an optional thing as if it's somewhat disconnected from, uh, as, if, as if the two ideas are disconnected. When Christ is about to go to his trial, when he's about to be arrested in the middle of the night, and taken away, and numbered among the transgressors, when he's about to experience this, he prays, like we talked about earlier, that God would take this divine life, which he has in himself, and open it up to human beings, that is, those disciples which are going to follow him, not only the disciples, but those who will come after. We're going to actually end with this reading, uh, and, and one or two final comments, but in John 17, uh, Jesus Christ is a is about to die. He's he's going on the road to his death. And he says in John 17, verse 20, I do not ask for these only, that is, he's talking these these people that are with him, his disciples, not only these disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus Christ has in mind all of us who would believe the message of the apostles. And that is the message which shows up in the gospels. And so this includes you, it includes me. Verse 21, that they may all be one. There is a unity which Jesus Christ is praying for. And that unity is not just some uh, circle the wagons, rah, rah, let's rally the team again, unity. It's a unity that comes from the life of God. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now, this is amazing to me. And the reason why this is his prayer is this, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Something in our ability to behold and commune with God testifies to the world that there is a reality to Jesus Christ's claim to come from God. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. The reason why Christ gives the glory is for us to become one, even as he and the Father are one. And so, this glory giving of Jesus is transformative. It changes us from many who are not a people, who are constantly at war with and an uh, enmity against our fellow brother, to be one. And then Jesus continues to pray I and them, and you and me, that they may become one perfectly so that the world would know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus Christ is praying that we would know that God the Father loves us even as he loved his Son. And that love is eternal, unceasing, and unending. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ ties our ability to understand and know the Father with his existence with God from before the foundation of the world or before creation was made. Verse 25, O righteous Father, I like the the term holy because that's the, the word that's there. O holy Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus Christ, as he is going to the cross, about to suffer the greatest suffering imaginable, not only bearing the penalty of an unjust trial, but also being crucified, probably the most excruciating, excruciating form of torment, also to bear the wrath of God, does not have his own interests in mind. I don't know about you. If I was going to that place, if I knew that I was about to be executed and my life was about to be cut off, I probably would be thinking most about woe is me. Jesus Christ is saying, Father, by me going to the cross, I want you to open up this life, this indwelling between you and me, that they would have the same love with which you have loved me, that this would be the defining reality over their life. Christ is, by his death and suffering, shows us the love of the Father. He says, I have declared your name and I will declare it. Jesus Christ, in going to the cross, is his final testimony. This is what the Father is doing about the problem of sin in these who he's called and desired to be with him. He is going to put an end to it, and not in a way that puts an end to them. In his life, ministry, and suffering, Christ declares the Father's name, and his love. Everything that Jesus did, he says, I have declared your name. And that declaration is allowing us to see God. And before Christ goes to the cross, he's not saying, I hope a lot of them will be spared from hell. He's saying, "I, I desire, Father, that they would be with me where I am, and that they would know that you love them with the love that you have for me, and that they would be one, and that we would be one together. In his resurrection, Jesus Christ opens up a pathway of life for us, as the psalmists say, you make known to me the paths of life, and this is what we have been invited to in the gospel. In Christ's glorification, he sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to lead and guide the church into all the truth and to show us his glory with the Father, and this transformative glory causes us to be one and to bear that image of our maker and our redeemer. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful glory of your word. Lord, we thank you that your word is not only true, but also, Lord, it's active. I pray, God, that by your word that you would transform us, that we would be delivered, Lord, from all minor issues and concerns of life that are trivial. And, Lord, that we would be delivered not by some sort of... um, trying harder or self-effort, but that we would understand that this was why we were were made. And that these other issues which which plague our lives, God, that they would fall away just because when we turn to you, we know the veil is removed. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to see and to savor Jesus Christ, that he would be supremely joyful and good, and that we would understand and, and see and savor Uh, who you are in yourself. God, we ask you that you would, by your Spirit, make known to us these paths of life, and that we would see the purpose for why we exist. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.